Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, Canadian poet, essayist, Greek and Latin scholar, and librettist, Anne Carson. The author of Autobiography of Red and its sequel, Red Dock, is also the first and only two-time winner of the Griffin Prize for Poetry. I've admired Anne Carson's work for a long time now. I remember hearing in the late 1980s that there was this professor of classics at McGill University who was writing amazing stuff, starting with her quirky academic treatise called Eros the Bittersweet. But even there, she infused classical philosophy with witty, ironic brilliance. Next, she produced two remarkable books of poetry combined with essays and was hailed as an original. She won both a Guggenheim and a Lenan Foundation Fellowship, plus a half-million-dollar MacArthur Genius Award. With her 2001 book, The Beauty of the Husband, a fictional essay in 29 tangos, she became the first woman to receive England's T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. And Carson also won Canada's inaugural Griffin Prize for her previous collection, Men in the Off Hours. Along the way, Anne Carson had a crossover success with another unusual book, Autobiography of Red. Subtitled A Novel in Verse, it blended a modern homosexual romance with Greek myth, set in small-town Ontario and Peru. Then its sequel, Red Dock, won the 2014 Griffin Prize. This is how she introduces it. Some years ago, I wrote a book about a boy named Geryon, who was red and had wings, and fell in love with Heracles. Recently, I began to wonder what happened to them in later life. Red Dock continues their adventures in a very different style, and with changed names. She continues, To live past the end of your myth is a perilous thing. A few years ago, when Anne Carson was presented with the Penn Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature, the judges praised her for, quote, crossing boundaries again and again, for her rejection, interrogation, and redefinition of inherited forms and genres, for her uncanny weaving of the classical and the avant-garde, for her transformative translations, for startling us. When I first spoke with Anne Carson in 2011, her latest book was Nox, N-O-X, which means night. It's an elegy to her brother, an epitaph, as she calls it, a notebook of memories and fragments, a moving reflection on absence. For many years, Anne Carson divided her time between Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she's lived since 2003, and Brooklyn, New York, where she subsequently taught English and classics at NYU. But nowadays, she lives in Ann Arbor and Iceland. Back in 2011, I caught up with her at the Banff Center, where she was part of their International Literary Translators Residency. Much of your work invokes the ancient classical period, references to Greek myths, translations from Greek or Latin, essays on ancient thought. What first drew you to that world? 
I think it was a little experience I had in a shopping mall in Hamilton, Ontario in about 1965, just trolling around the bookstore for something. And for some reason, they had a bilingual edition of Sappho by Willis Barnstone, the translator and editor, and it had the Greek on the left, the English on the right, and it just looked so fascinating. I thought I should learn this. So then by chance, we moved, and the next year I went to a high school in Port Hope where the Latin teacher knew Greek, and when she found I was interested, she offered to teach me on my lunch hour. So I owe it entirely my whole career and happiness to Alice Cowan in Port Hope High School. And what was it? Was it that the the, the letter, the language looked so alien or there, it looked enticing? I mean, what was... It was partly that, the look and just the, the aesthetic, but it was also at that time I was fancying myself as a, um, a reborn Oscar Wilde and the whole world of intellectual life in Oscar Wilde's time, which included a lot of Latin and Greek, was sort of a myth to me. So I thought, well, if I learned Greek, I could be all the more like Oscar Wilde. So it seemed like the natural next step. A reborn Oscar Wilde? Yes, I had an Oscar Wilde costume that I wore now and again for special occasions, and I just thought he was the most interesting fellow. Did you drop bon mots and witticisms and I've that kind of, those clever, epic, dramatic? <laughs> <laughs> As we will discover in the course of the interview, no, I'm not quick-witted, but I appreciate wit. <laughs> and once you started to study Latin and Greek, and especially Greek, do you remember what the first myths you heard were? I think probably the ones that Sappho refers to, which are not in general, the standard ones, but um, Niobe, for example, who was turned into a rock because she wept so much. And most poignantly, I remember from that book, The Myth of Tithonus. Tithonus was a young man who fell in love with the dawn, the goddess of the dawn. And they had, you know, a pleasant affair. And then one day he asked her to um, make him immortal. He wanted to be a god and live with her forever, so she went to Zeus and said, can you make Tithonus immortal? And Zeus said, sure, so he made him immortal, but he didn't make him ageless. So he withered forever into a little cricket of himself, and that wasn't much fun for the goddess of the dawn anymore. That's one of those really tragic what-you-wish-for stories. It is, yes. Be careful. Pay attention to the fine print. (laughs) (laughs) The wording, yes. The wording is key. And tell me a little more about what, once you were studying Greek, uh, what, I mean, obviously you stuck with it and it it became Mm. became your subject, but can Mm. you say more about what what attracted you to it, about that culture, the the, the language, the the complexity? I think... um, it's partly the content of the works because they they simply are some of the most thoughtful literatures, pieces of literature that anyone's ever come up with. But also the activity, the, the mental activity of being in a translation is something I simply love. It's it's like doing an endless, endless crossword puzzle with a product that's valuable. And I, that, that puzzle mode of mind, I think, is simply the best thing. Do you know at what point you 
determine that this would be your life subject? Oh, immediately when I studied it with Mrs. Cowan. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was just unquestionable. Ah, coup de food. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yes. And she was a very unusual person. I remember she smelled of celery all the time. And after that year, she disappeared. She quit, I guess. She disappeared from the high school, and somebody said she ended up in Africa. And then some decades later, when I did a reading somewhere, I think Montreal, after the reading, during which I had mentioned her because I read some Greek stuff, a woman came up to me and said, Alice Cowan's my mother, and she now lives on a farm in northern Ontario. She's kind of a hermit, and she'd probably like to hear from you, but she won't answer. So I wrote her a letter, and indeed, she didn't, didn't answer. answer. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I know about Alice Cowan. And Carson, your latest book, Knox, is a kind of grief project, uh, an epitaph for your brother who died in 2000. You structure the work by translating word by word a poem by Catullus, a Roman poet who lived in the first century B.C. Tell me a bit about the poem, the, the context for it, like how Catullus came to, to He it. wrote it because he, he had a brother. Um, we don't know much about his brother, but his brother died in the Troad in Asia Minor, and he, Catullus, traveled from Italy to Asia Minor to bury him, stand at the grave, and then wrote the elegy some time around then in honor of his brother. And the Troy, that's near Troy? Or what we it, yeah, there was a Roman um, settlement on the site of what they thought was the ancient Troy, the province. Could you read your translation of Poem 101 by Catullus? Yes, love to. Many the peoples, many the oceans I crossed. I arrive at these poor brother burials so I could give you the last gift owed to death and talk, why, with mute ash. Now that fortune tore you from me, you, O oh poor, wrongly brother, wrongly taken from me, now still anyway this, what a distant mood of parents handed down as the sad gift for burials, except soaked with tears of a brother, and into forever, brother, farewell and farewell. Catullus 101. Anne Carson with her translation of a poem by Catullus. A sense of mystery infuses Knox. I mean, there is the difficulty of elegizing a brother who had disappeared from your life long before his death. Yes. And you say your brother was running from the law and went overseas in 1978. Yes. What did you know about his life around that time? I didn't know very much. He, we both went to university, more or less, at the same time, different universities. And I was immersed in my Greek and Latin, and that was the world he had no interest in or patience with. And he diverged from my taste and moral standards and everything else makes you a person, so I didn't really know him anymore, and then he began to deal drugs, and that seemed stupid to me, so we argued about that, and then after he got arrested, he decided to jump bail and left the country. And that was 1978, which mm -hmm. was the last time that you saw him? Right. 
In in your book, there's a photo of your brother around 10 years old, and he's mm. standing on the ground with some other boys above him in a tree house. Uh-huh. What do you see when you look at that? It just breaks my heart, frankly, because he was always inclined to hang out with boys too old for him, I guess because it, you know, enhanced his view of himself. And they always picked on him and exploited him. So there he is at the bottom of the ladder of the treehouse, bottom of the tree. They've taken up the ladder so he can't come up and join them. And he looks just so stalwart about it. He looks like he's, it's just another one of those setbacks. He's going to get through it and come out to a brighter day. And he always was like that. He always had this kind of absolutely unfounded optimism that things would get better as they kept getting worse. Because in the text you say that years later when your brother began to deal drugs, you'd get a sinking feeling because of a sideways, invisible look that he wore in that photo. Yes. What, what was? Why was that look so troubling? I th- I'm not sure. Photographs are stunning that way. They give you so much information that you can't paraphrase. But when I looked at that photograph later after he died, it seemed to me, well, his whole life is in that look. He'll never win and he'll never believe that the next throw of the dice isn't going to be a win. It's interesting you say optimism because in so many of the photos he's he's bashed up, you know, he's, yeah, he's wearing he's, a sling or a, a bandage or something. I didn't notice that in at the time, like when I was six or ten, or, but when I got the photographs out to make the book, I was struck by that he always has a broken arm or a bandage on his leg. Or, I don't remember all those injuries, but there he was, but he was not deterred. Because break his arm and go on, join the hockey team. Because <laughs> partly, I, I think it, hanging around with the older boys would, mm. would do it. Or, or did he have trouble making friends? No, he was very charming. He could make friends with anyone. So I don't know why they beat him up so much. <laughs> <laughs> there are these mysteries that remain with one's siblings. Your brother was four years older than you, and, and mm. when you were in your teens and both in high school, uh, he liked you to do his homework, but he also, he called you professor or yeah. pinhead. Yes. How would, you, how would you describe your relationship? Oh, rueful. I think he kind of put up with me once I started doing his homework for him because he kept failing French, and he got put back in school a few times. And I... I don't know how I... I had a very ambivalent attitude to him, I guess. When we were younger, he was my total hero, and I followed him around everywhere and got told to go home. But as we went into adulthood, I didn't understand his decisions and uh, couldn't reason with him, so it all got to be kind of fractious. But I think I still saw him as a kind of mythic person, because of that strange, undeterrable optimism. And he had a sort of glow. You know, he was the kind of person who would come into a room and everybody would look at him. He was very handsome. He has tall and had blonde hair, but he just also had a kind of a charmingness that that I admired. I was never charming. <laughs> <laughs> 
And do you think the pinhead professor was that a an affectionate play or was yeah, it, yes, yeah. I think it was, yeah. He also I still have this book, gave me I think when I turned sixteen. No, it was Christmas when I was sixteen, Roger's Thesaurus because he wanted me to be a writer, that's what I wanted to be. And um but it was in two volumes and he gave me volume one. <laughs> Never got round to giving me volume two. It's a clue to certain things about my writing. <laughs> you you tilt you favor the first favor half the of the first alphabet. Half, yes, I'm much more versatile at that side of the alphabet for some reason. Knox itself is is presented as an artifact. It's a fold-out, accordion-style book with pieces of paper stapled or glued on, sometimes with text. There are photos, painted images, fragments of a handwritten letter. It's it's very tactile. I kept kept touching it, thinking it would be, like there's a staple here. But, of course, each page is a reproduction of all those Mm -hmm. things. The original process for you of making the book, what was that like? I mean, was it... A way of working through grief, or what, how, how did it? Yeah, engage it was a, a not so much grief. I mean, yeah, grief partly, but more the puzzle of understanding him. Because when I when he died, actually, just before he died, he had telephoned me for the first time since 1978. This was in the year 2000, and we had a very strange, awkward conversation. And I arranged to go to Copenhagen, where he turned out to be living, and meet with him. But a week before I was to go, I got a phone call from a woman who said, you don't know me, but your brother has just died in my bathroom. And that was his wife, whom he'd been married to in Copenhagen for 17 years. So I went to Copenhagen and met her and the dog and found out some things about his life. But the more I found out, the more I didn't know about who he ever had been those 17 or so years, 22 years. 22 years, years, yeah. He was gone. So I started the book as an effort of understanding, just trying to put strands of things I could say about him into one place and see what it added up to. And then as it went on, it became a kind of, well, as I said, an epitaph, a, a way of praising him, I think. How did he die? He had a um, aneurysm. I think he had lived a hard life, drugs and so on, and uh, yeah, system gave out. He was only uh, in his 50s. Some of the photos that you use are fragments, and many don't have people in them. Uh, one features the shadow of a person more than the humans in the distance, mm. uh, the, or a chair, a shed, an empty swing, uh, some stairs, uh, a wall. Mm. There, there is a sense of absence. Uh, mm. What do you see when when you look at them? Well, when I was uh, young and idolizing him, he was always gone because he didn't want to spend time with me. He managed to vanish. But later than when I was puzzling over who he had been in his later years, I just couldn't get it. It it was like Aeneas in the underworld, you know, when he meets his dead mother and tries to embrace her. Three times he holds out his arms and tries to embrace her, and she keeps vanishing from his grip. It's that very experience. So I wanted to put the, the vanishing into the pictures and 
if you cut out the people, <laughs> there's a lot of vanishing there. So, and then some of them were empty anyway, oddly. That's another thing you discover when you look at your old family photographs. So all, a lot of them are pictures of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Very evocative, pictures of nothing. About halfway through the book, there's a line that says, always comforting to assume there is a secret behind what torments you. Mm -hmm. Well, a secret meaning something that would make sense, the answer, rather than just all these bits. I mean, most of us, to be honest, are just a collection of bits that don't make sense, and it's a nice idea that there's a coherent self in each of us with a story that another person could tell, but it's kind of a fiction. And with somebody like him, you really come up against that fiction because he did not want to be known. I think that must be the difference because even though all of us might be these fragments that are fiction, we try to mm. present, we give narratives that make it seem yes. to have coherence. We do. At some point he gave up on that, I think. Self-presentation, yeah, he gave up on that. Your mother described your brother as the light of her life, and, and he wrote mm -hmm. occasional postcards in one letter. She didn't see him for the last 20 years of her life. Can you talk about how, about their relationship, how his absence affected her? Oh, it ruined her life, I'd say. She died not knowing if he was still alive, and I think she was just sad for all those years. She never gave up hoping that he'd turn up. I think I did, but she never really abandoned that notion and it made her life be sort of the wrong life. You know, the right life would have been the one where he came in the door. He was really her, her golden child. She had a little a lock of his hair from when he was a baby and I don't know how to measure that sort of sorrow. And when he called me that time I mentioned it on the phone and he just said, yeah, I guess that's true. She had already died by then? Yeah, she died three years before. And I said, she had a lot of pain because of you. And he said, yeah, I guess that's true. So, cut off from himself at some level. Did anything change for you after finishing Knox? Either in how you saw your brother or the whole idea of elegy and investigation? I don't think anything changed in my view of him. It was more storied, but not more complete, I think. Elegy, I don't know. It's a difficult form, that's all I would say. It's hard to keep the dignity of the subject without getting your own fingerprints all over it. And did you need... In a sense, I mean, you took the 10 years to process it or to before releasing it to the world? To yes, I think that was part of it, too. At first, it seemed um, just mine, and then I wanted to show it to a few people and then a few more people. So I think it gradually moved out in, in rings. It's funny how that works. <laughs> I guess I detached a little bit from the content. That sounds heartless, but it does happen. Grief ends. Because of time. Yeah, and you have to go on 
living what you live. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Ann Carson, your book, Autobiography of Red, is your first novel in verse. It also takes a story from the ancients as its starting point, the myth of Heracles and the monster Geryon. Can you tell me a bit about that story? Uh, Yes, Heracles is that person you probably know from Saturday morning cartoons who did the famous uh, labors. Hercules. Hercules, we call him in American. One of his labors was to travel to the island of a supposed monster called Geryon and capture his magic red cattle. So he did that, killed Geryon, took the cattle, and succeeded. So I just changed that story a bit. (laughs) A bit. (laughs) Yeah, moderate bit. Well, the mythical Geryon has wings, and so does Hmm. your... Incarnation. They're they're another marker of his of his difference. Yes. What what did attract you to the story? Uh, his monstrosity, as a character, his difference. I mean, we all feel we're monsters most of the time, but also that there is a very tantalizing set of fragments about this myth from the. Greek poet Stesichorus, who isn't very much read or known. Um, He doesn't write attractive love poetry like Sappho, and doesn't get much worked on. But these fragments are quite beautiful, I thought, so I got involved in translating them just for my own pleasure. But you did have your own story, which we'll get to, but we first meet Geryon as a young boy. Could you read from Autobiography of Red? Mm Mm-hmm, sure. Chapter 4, Tuesday. Tuesdays were best. Every second Tuesday in winter, Garyon's father and brother went to hockey practice. Garyon and his mother had supper alone. They grinned at each other as night climbed ashore, turned on all the lights even in rooms they weren't using. Garyon's mother made their favorite meal, cling peaches from the can and toast cut into fingers for dipping. Lots of butter on the toast, so a little oil slick floats out on top of the peach juice. They took supper trays into the living room. Garyon's mother sat on the rug with magazines, cigarettes, and telephone. Garyon worked beside her under the lamp. He was gluing a cigarette onto a tomato. Don't pick your lip, Garyon, let it heal. She blew smoke out her nose as she dialed. Maria? It's me. Can you talk? What did he say? Just like that? Bastard. That's not freedom, it's indifference. Some kind of addict. I'd throw the bum out. Oh, that's melodrama. She stubbed her cigarette hard. Why not have a nice bath? Yes, dear, I know it doesn't matter now. Garyon? Oh, fine, he's right here, working on his autobiography. No, it's a sculpture. He doesn't know how to write yet. 
Oh, this and that, stuff he finds outside. Garyon's always finding things, aren't you, Garyon? She winked at him over the telephone. He winked back using both eyes and returned to work. He had ripped up some pieces of crispy paper he found in her purse to use for hair and was gluing these to the top of the tomato. Outside the house a black January wind came flattening down from the top of the sky and hit the windows hard. The lamp flared. It's beautiful, Garion, she said, hanging up the phone. It's a beautiful sculpture. She put her hand on top of his small luminous skull as she studied the tomato. And bending, she kissed him once on each eye, then picked up her bowl of peaches from the tray and handed Gary on his. Maybe next time you could use a one-dollar bill instead of a ten for the hair, she said as they began to eat. <laughs> I like that part. <laughs> <laughs> and Carson reading from her novel in verse, Autobiography of Red, it's interesting what you do in that. It just even that in that piece, it's it's uh, it's very dramatic. It's it, it could be a radio play almost. So just hearing mm-hmm. you read it now, and and but that part of the narrative is almost told off stage, like the woman is on a one-sided phone call yes. talking about Garyon, who's in the room with her. I mean, you're doing interesting. Don't you remember that from growing up? Though most of your information about your mother came from listening to one-sided phone conversations she had with other people. Yes, with her sister, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a different person to her sister than she ever is to you, and you get this sense of, oh, a whole human being. I didn't know her. I like that, yes. I've often wondered who that mother is. I think, actually, now that we put these together, that that mother is the mother I imagine my brother had. Because she's not the mother I had. I just thought well, that now. A, but your brother, your brother isn't Garia. No, not in any finished way. But I think the puzzle of what's what boys are was there long before my brother did the things he did. In autobiography of Red, Garion and Heracles are modern day lovers. What did you see in the ancient myth that inspired this interpretation? Absolutely nothing, because in the ancient myth, Heracles just goes there, confronts him, and kills him, and the story's over. But there's so much in ancient myths, other ancient myths like Homer, the Iliad, there's so much reference to homoerotic tenderness. And it's a very interesting thing to me how that works and how it um, works in a story. So I wanted to put that in to give Garyon sort of a fun part to his life because so much of it didn't work out well. Well, it's a fun part except that... what fun for a while. What happens when you love the person who is going to destroy you? I mean, not quite the literal killing in this case, but he's going to break his heart. Yes, but then that always happens, doesn't it? That's what stories are about. Yeah. But still, he had that experience... That's how you learn who you are. I mean, people break your heart and go on, get another one. And there's a, there's a there's a great line where it's, they were they were two superior eels at the bottom of the tank, and they recognized each other like italics. Mm. What what is the nature of the attraction that you imagine between them? Uh, 
probably mutual strangeness. I think that's why I used italics. Everybody else is a Roman font, and then these two people show up who are slanted, and they're the only slanted ones, and they see that. It's just that automatic lightning that happens. In, in an essay in, a, in your earlier book, Eros the Bittersweet, you talk about Eros, or love, as a triangulation. Can you tell me more about that? I would say desire more than love as a triangulation because most of the time desire is stimulated by seeing someone else desiring something. It's usually A watching B desiring C. Well, it's the structure most famously of a Sappho poem that everybody likes, Sappho's Fragment 31, about that man who sits opposite you seems equal to the gods. That kind of structure has been much analyzed by erotic philosophers as the basis of why we want anything, not because we want it, but because we see someone else wanting it, or because it's gone, it's been taken by someone else. And I think that's there's some truth in that. And I, I thought it also had something to do with uh, wanting what we imagine the person to be rather than what the person actually is. Yeah, it can be that, an yes. element of, of that as well. Yes, so you have the other two points of the triangle are the real person and the myth of that person that you yourself have constructed. But both are pre- predicated on not actually connecting with the person and not having desire fulfilled. It yes. seems to be how, well, this, how it, this setup works. It seems to be, yes. Even etymologically, to desire in Greek is to lack, or in English, to want. You don't want what you have. You want what is wanting. So it has to be gone. But yet, in in the in autobiography I've read, there's a reference to a philosophical argument about knowledge of the other, and and um, mm-hmm. he says, "I will never know how you see red, and you will." never know how I see it, but this separation of consciousness is recognized only after a failure of communication, and our first movement is to believe in an undivided being between us. Hmm. That's a nice moment when we believe that. It's the first movement, then there's the second movement, and then there's the denouement. The first movement is actually wanting the undivided being between us. The second movement is realizing is that what you really want is what you don't have. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then you realize you never will have it, and you go back to your own life. It's a a sad (laughs) two-step. Very sad. And Carson, you give another view of love in your book, The Beauty of the Husband. It's described as a fictional essay in 29 tangos. Mm. I'd like you to read one of the tangos from that book. Okay. Tango 2, entitled, But a dedication is only felicitous if performed before witnesses. It is an essentially public surrender like that of standards of battle. You know I was married years ago, and when he left, my husband took my notebooks wire-bound notebooks. You know that cool, sly verb, write. He liked writing, disliked having to start each thought himself, used my starts to various ends. For example, in a pocket I found a letter he'd begun to his mistress at that time, containing a phrase I had copied from Homer. Entropolidzomene is how Homer says 
Andromache went after she parted from Hector, often turning to look back. She went down from Troy's tower and through stone streets to her loyal husband's house, and there with her women raised a lament for a living man in his own halls. Loyal to nothing, my husband. So why did I love him from early girlhood to late middle age and a divorce decree came in the mail? Beauty. No great secret. Not ashamed to say I loved him for his beauty. As I would again if he came near. Beauty convinces. You know beauty makes sex possible. Beauty makes sex sex. You, if anyone, grasp this. Hush, let's pass to natural situations. Other species which are not poisonous often have colorations and patterns similar to poisonous species. This imitation of a poisonous by a non-poisonous species is called mimicry. My husband was no mimic. You will mention, of course, the war games. I complained to you often enough when they were here all night with the boards spread out and rugs and little lamps and cigarettes like Napoleon's tent, I suppose. Who could sleep? All in all, my husband was a man who knew more about the Battle of Borodino than he did about his own wife's body, much more. Tensions poured up the walls and along the ceiling. Sometimes they played Friday night till Monday morning straight through, he and his pale, wrathful friends. They sweated badly. They ate meats of the countries in play. Jealousy formed no small part of my relationship to the Battle of Borodino. I hate it. Do you? Why play all night? The time is real. It's a game. It's a real game. Is that a quote? Come here. No, I need to touch you. No, yes. That night we made love the real way, which we had not yet attempted, although married six months. Big mystery. No one knew where to put their leg, and to this day I'm not sure we got it right. He seemed happy. You're like Venice, he said beautifully. Early next day I wrote a short talk on defloration, which he stole and had published in a small quarterly magazine. Overall, this was a characteristic interaction between us. Or should I say, ideal. Neither of us has ever seen Venice. Anne Carson, reading from The Beauty of the Husband. The wife in the story describes their interaction at the end of that passage as characteristic or ideal. In, in, in what way ideal? Based on beauty, I think beauty is a romantic ideal that works itself out in various ways in various relationships. Got to start from beauty, sets you up on the ideal plane. It's that myth you're desiring the one you have invented rather than the one who exists. Because the one who exists knows more about the Battle of Borodino than he does about his <laughs> wife's body. It's such a great line. <laughs> yes, and, that, and his beauty partly consists in that. <laughs> it's refreshing to hear the wife admit that she wasn't ashamed to say she loved her husband for his beauty. I mean, for, mm. some, reason, for some reason, we're, we often are reluctant to admit yeah. beauty's power over us. I know. Isn't that funny? And it's so much a part of all of Western culture that that's what makes love happen. And if, if the person isn't beautiful, you convince yourself they are at the time. 
And and you quote a passage from Keats before each tango or, or section, and, and it, it was Keats, of course, uh, who who wrote famously, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Mm-hmm. How does beauty speak of truth? I don't think it does. I think that's all a big mistake, but there's so much power in believing it, and so many of the decisions of life, especially early life, I mean, I think it's very appealing to the adolescent emotions to identify those two and think that the person who's beautiful is also true and the feelings that come from beauty lead you to truth. I don't think works out usually. Well, cer- certainly not in the beauty of this husband. <laughs> <laughs> not in this particular story, it doesn't. But why don't we just say beauty is beauty? I mean, why could, could we... We could admit that we're awed or transported or seduced or overwhelmed by beauty. Why, why isn't that enough? Why do we have to I think it? it seems incomplete because beauty does make you think into things in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. And that thinking starts your hope that there's truth at the end of whatever process of thinking you get involved in there. I think because it involves you in wondering about the nature of reality you get attached to the idea that there's truth in it. I, I don't want to presume autobiography here, but you were once married. Did you bring some of that experience to the beauty of the husband? Some of it, but it's very manipulated and beautified, I would say, actually. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's not, yeah, not autobiographical very much. Did he take your notebooks? Did he return your notebooks? <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> he did, and eventually he did. N- near the end of The Beauty of the Husband, the wife contrasts her earlier view of beauty, her pure early thought, with a later experience of it. Before, she wanted to recognize it without desiring it. Now her advice is hold, hold beauty. Mm-hmm. What, what has changed for her? I guess her sense of where she stands in the whole question. She can hold it if she doesn't need it. Which has to do with not wanting to desire. Yes, has to do with uh, with getting the desperation out of it. If she can be a whole person and also hold then that's much better than not being whole without that thing, not being complete without that thing. Although, I mean, at one point the wife wonders what not wanting to desire means, and one could associate that with a kind of freedom, but on the other hand, it it feels like giving up. I mean, like a kind of utter... It's a kind of deadness, yeah. Yeah, utter resignation or something. Yes, resignation or turning entirely inward. I think that's not where she wants to end up, but I believe it's left open whether she does end up there or not. I don't think you quite know what sort of person she ends up being, besides saved from this, but next time, who knows what would happen. Anne Carson, in your more recent book, Decreation, you say your earliest memory is of a dream. Can Mm. Can you describe that for me? Oh, yes, a dream of being asleep. Uh, I dreamt I was asleep and went downstairs 
in our house to the living room. And it was our living room as it had been in the day, but it was all changed somehow intangibly weird. In the day, about how old were you here? Three. Oh, okay. It had, I don't know how to describe that change. What is, how can a room change and still be the same room? But to me, later, looking back on that dream, it seemed like I was imagining a room gone mad. The same room, but gone mad inside itself. And I guess I came to that because it happened to my father, that he got dementia and he was his same self and yet utterly changed inside. And the room seemed to have undergone that same weirdening. Although you you also say that despite the spooky element of the dream, there was something consoling about it. Still, it was the room. I mean, even if your father's mad, he's still your father, and you want to try to keep talking. There's something about the familiar that's absolutely necessary, no matter how how weird it gets. Could you read a poem from your book, Men in the Off Hours? Hmm. Father's Old Blue Cardigan Now it hangs on the back of the kitchen chair where I always sit, as it did on the back of the kitchen chair where he always sat. I put it on whenever I come in, as he did, stamping the snow from his boots. I put it on and sit in the dark. He would not have done this. Coldness comes paring down from the moon bone in the sky. His laws were a secret, but I remember the moment at which I knew he was going mad inside his laws. He was standing at the turn of the driveway when I arrived. He had on the blue cardigan with the buttons done up all the way to the top. Not only because it was a hot July afternoon, but the look on his face. As a small child who has been dressed by some aunt early in the morning for a long trip on cold trains and windy platforms, will sit very straight at the edge of his seat while the shadows like long fingers over the haystacks that sweep past keep shocking him because he is riding backwards. And Carson with Father's Old Blue Cardigan from Men in the Off Hours. In, in the first two stanzas, the, the eye in the poem imitates the father's actions. Yeah. Do you or did you get comfort th- from that cardigan? Yeah, I still have it. I wear it in the winter. I just love it. I always got pleasure from imitating him. (laughs) But I especially love that sweater. Imitating him in what way? Oh, wearing the same kind of boots, trying to walk like him, or, yeah, just being, I don't know, manly and reticent. (laughs) (laughs) You say his laws were a secret. What what was your father like? He was very quiet, and he didn't explain himself much. We had uh, not a lot of conversation in our life. Um, So he was a bit of a mystery to me inside, but I very much liked him as a person. We had not at all the same taste or 
intellectual ambitions, but we had, I think, the same sense of humor. We liked the same stupid jokes, and that's a nice bond, someone. You say that you didn't have much in the way of conversation with your father, but mm. but he liked numbers. He, would he was about. always figuring on napkins because he was a bank manager, and I think also because he was shot down in the war, and he was in a prison camp for some time, about a year. And he didn't have horrific experiences there, but he, I'm sure, was just bored to death. And one thing he had with him for some reason was an accounting textbook. So he passed the time by doing all the problems from this accounting book. And I think that set up a habit in him of whenever he had empty time, he'd just fiddle with algebra problems on a napkin. So all the napkins in our house or when we went to restaurants were covered with little numbers in his script. That fascinated me. I was never any good at math. When you say you wanted to be like him in that uh, silent, manly mm. way, that's the opposite of Oscar Wilde. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that Oscar Wilde would think that. I think Oscar and my dad would have admired each other as different monsters. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. It's a different type. My dad was a deeper model. I think Oscar Wilde was perhaps the phase of rebellion against being my father. So I came and went from rebellion, but always wanted to be like my father underneath. Anne Carson, your mother was a Roman Catholic, and you say your attendance at church is or was in part a habit. Do, mm. you, do you still attend? I don't, no. I can't tolerate papal things in general. But you used to go. And, uh, to, I did. To, I found to, great comfort in it going with her. It was a habit we had. She was a believer. Sometimes that's enough, you know, for comfort to be with a believer and share the actions. And smell her coat. And something, smell about her coat. That, something about that I could just totally relate to. I don't know if it's just the Canadian winter or what, but. Yeah, I remember that coat still. It was a fake fur coat, and I would just lean into it all the time the priest was droning on. In your poem, My Religion, you say, My religion makes no sense and does not help me, therefore I pursue it. Mm. Now, that, that was written about 20 years ago, but the idea of God is one that. You, that, that per percolates its way through some yeah. of your other work. Are, are you still in, in pursuit, or is it still something that engages you? Not so directly as then. I think at that time I was interested in the writings of various mystics, and I um, searched around in that for some years. But I don't... I didn't think in the end that that was the place I would do my best thinking. What what is your idea of God, or is it? I don't think I have an idea of it anymore at all. Uh, at that time, maybe I did, or at least of unknowability as a divine atmosphere. But I don't even know that that's solid in me anymore. You've noted that attention is a form of prayer, and, and from paying attention to who one is, one mm -hmm. can then step beyond the border of oneself and then move from there to the creation of, of a work of art. Mm -hmm. Can you link that chain for me? How, 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 tell me more about how that works. Yeah. Well, lately I've been studying John Cage a lot, 
And I think that's something I very much appreciate in him, that he moves or tries to move to a place of complete stillness and attention within himself, attention to something else in order to make a work that's not himself. He says, I want to get every me out of the way in order to start doing whatever the work will be. And that's just such an ongoing struggle to get every me out of the way. For you, you yes. you would like to yes. eliminate the me? I would. The me is a kind of interesting flicker through the work. Uh, it's it's hard to keep it at the flicker level for me. It's cut. It takes over. It becomes the only thing. It becomes the only principle of reasoning in the thing, and I want to reason about something else. Life is short. Isn't that what what the classics and you know particularly Greek and Latin. Translation origin mm. isn't that what that gives you because it's so f- far out of yourself? Yes, but anything can. I mean, looking at a pencil can give it to you. It's just a matter of causing your mind to focus on that thing, that question, whatever you choose to consider a question. Translation, yes, is an ideal process of it because it's so big and envelops your whole day. But you can do it with very small things too. How? While looking at a stone. I mean, just a matter of attention is a choice of where you put your mind. And looking at a stone to the extent that you forget you're doing the looking. Yes, exactly. Well put. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great pleasure to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you, Eleanor. Ann Carson in Banff, Alberta in 2011. Knox is published by New Directions. Her recent books include Norma Jean Baker of Troy, which won the 2020 Governor General's Award for Poetry, H of H Playbook, and earlier this month, a new collection called Wrong Norma. Writers and Company was produced this week by Mary Stinson, with thanks to Katie Swales and Sarah Cooper. The senior producer is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, American novelist James McBride, known for his memoir, The Color of Water, about his immigrant Jewish mother and black American father, McBride's comic treatment of abolitionist John Brown was a National Book Award winner. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.